If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along right there in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words... This adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, authored by the inspiration of your spirit and and preserved for us through all these ages by that same, your same spirit. And now we pray that your spirit would come and instruct us and teach us so that we would hear these words and um, they would not just be information. We would believe them. We would trust in them. We would be changed by them. And, uh, and that they would lead us, above all, to our Savior, Jesus, that we would receive him with faith and follow him with obedience. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are about uh, halfway through the Gospel of Mark. And you could maybe say that the Gospel of Mark, the first half of the Gospel of Mark, has been answering the question, who is Jesus? You know, Jesus has been doing all these miracles that are showing his divinity, his messianic, he's a messianic figure. And the second half of the gospel is now answering the question, why did Jesus come? So who is Jesus and why did he come? And if that's the case, well, then this passage that we're looking at today is really the hinge on which the whole gospel turns. It's kind of the centerpiece of the, of the gospel. Because you see that question about who is Jesus in verse 29, where it says, and Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? So finally, the question of Jesus' identity is, is, is addressed in this passage. And, uh, uh, and so the story then turns to why Jesus came in verse 31. And it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Why did Jesus come? He came to suffer on the cross, to die on the cross. And so everything about the Gospel of Mark from this point forward is aimed at that climactic ending to the Gospel, Jesus' 
death on the cross and resurrection. So today, um, I think it's a good opportunity to just kind of be reminded and to say plainly what is the gospel. And it's important that everyone in our community understands the gospel because the gospel is the power that creates the life of our community here. You know, we're not a bunch of people who come together and our personalities and our charisma or our good deeds or what's going to give this community life and make it thriving. It's the gospel that has the power to actually form us into a life-giving uh, uh, community. And be, uh, the gospel is not advice about how to live a successful life. The life's not... The gospel's not even about, uh, you know, morals and how to be a good person. And you might think, well, how do you have a thriving community? Well, everyone needs to be, have good morals. And then if we follow good morals, then we'll have a thriving community. No, the gospel is emphatically not about something we do. The gospel is an announcement of something that God has done in history through Jesus Christ. And since it is the truth. It has a power to it, a power that can radically change everything about our, our lives. And so this is our philosophy at Christ Church, is that when you come here week after week, if you hear week after week, these are the morals that you need to do in order to be a better person, it, there's a certain heaviness that comes with that. It creates a certain mood to the whole church of like, wow, there's more stuff that I need to do and to please God. But if the main message is here what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and believe it, it creates joy, it creates humility, it creates love and compassion, and it's the message that changes us almost as a byproduct. So it doesn't tell us, you need to be these things, it says this is what God's done, and as we hear the message, we're transformed. That's how the gospel works. And so that's why we believe here that the gospel is not something that we just need to hear once when we become a Christian, it's something that we need to hear over and over again, week after week. The steady message, this is the truth that is our life. And so today, as we look at this passage, I want to just answer two simple questions for us. What is the gospel, and how does it shape how we live? Two simple questions. What is the gospel, and how does it shape how we live? And I'm going to spend most of my time on the first question than just a short answer to the second question. What is the gospel, and how does it shape how we live? And I think this is very basic fundamental of who we are as a community. So, two questions this morning, and the first is this. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, you notice how this passage begins in verse 27. It says, And Jesus went with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is the most northern place. And, you know, Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, he travels with his disciples to all these little towns. There's names of towns, you know, throughout ancient Israel that he passes to. And this town is the most northern one. And it's like he's trying to get away from all the crowds. And he wants to have an intimate time with his, disciple, with his disciples. And it says in the end of verse 27, And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And I've heard this described as, you know, it's, you imagine someone who's um, about to run for president. And they're about to start their campaign. They say, you know, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm going to run for president. And we're about to gather all the volunteers. We're going to start our marketing campaign. We're going to get our message out. And so just before they launch their campaign, he, the, the candidate goes away with his closest advisors. 
and just says, hey, I want to hear what the polls are saying. What are people saying before we make this run and before we launch into this, this important effort? And that's basically what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. He's having a retreat with his disciples. But he's not running for president. That's not what he's doing. In this scene, he is going to set his face toward Jerusalem. And actually, the rest of the Gospel of Mark, he's going to be traveling to Jerusalem. And in the end of the Gospel, he's going to eventually be crucified in Jerusalem during the Passover. And so it's this final stretch leading to that. And so he's getting his disciples together. And it's in this intimate setting with his disciples that he answers for them, what is the Gospel? And in these verses, we see three answers to that question that I want to point out today. So three answers to what is the Gospel. First answer is this. The Gospel is that Jesus is the true king of the world. The gospel is that Jesus is the true king of the world. Now notice what I said. The gospel is not something we do. It's something that God is doing in Jesus. So it's nothing about us. It's about Jesus is the true king of the world. And when Jesus asks his disciples who people say that he is, um, it says there in verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, this is basically a list of some of the Old Testament prophets that, um, uh, leading up to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was basically like the final prophet of the Old Testament. And he's just at the beginning of the New Testament before Jesus comes. And uh, prophets were basically messengers that God throughout history sent to his people to tell them about his purposes. And everyone is saying Jesus is another one of the prophets in this long line of messengers that God has sent. But then in verse 29 says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, Peter, in the Gospels, he makes all kinds of blunders. In this passage, he even makes a blunder that we'll read about. But part of why Jesus chose Peter is because he understood who Jesus was. And that word there, Christ, may mean something different, may have meant something different to a first century Jew than it means to us. And if you've never read through the Old Testament before, it, the meaning of that word isn't going to carry much weight. But the Christ means the anointed one. And if you read through the writings of the Old Testament prophets, you'll find that there is one common thread that, that goes through all the prophets. Whether it's Moses, whether it's Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or Zechariah. All these prophets who are writing in different times. They're writing over a thousand year period in different cultures, different time periods. They had one thing in common. They all said there is a king who is coming. And they all said little different things about this king. You know, in Genesis it says that the king is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that he's going to be, in, in Deuteronomy, he's going to be like a second Moses. You know, Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. This, this new Moses is going to lead the people out of slavery in, to sin. And Moses, you know, wrote God's law on uh, stone tablets, but this new Moses is going to write God's law on human hearts. And he's going to be a son of David, and he's going to have a kingdom that lasts forever, and he's going to preach good news to the poor and liberty to the captives, and he's going to lift up the oppressed, and he's going to forgive people's sins, and he's going to gather together in peace all the ethnic groups of the whole world. It's an incredible vision of this true king of the world who is going to come. And all the prophets agreed that this king is coming. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, what he's saying, he's like, you're not one of the long line of messengers. You're the one that the long line of messengers all agreed was eventually going to come. You're finally the one. You are the true king of the world. That's what the Christ means. 
Now, if you've had a picture of Jesus that he's, he's like a hippie that walks around and tells people, like, we should be nice to each other and we, I, let me show you how to have inner peace. This is a totally different picture, what, what is wrapped up in that one word, Christ. Jesus is building a civilization, a kingdom in the earth. And uh, he's the king. You become a citizen in his kingdom by f- having faith in him and being baptized. And that kingdom has a written code. It's the Bible that we all live under. We live under that code because he's the king. The kingdom has officials who oversee the rights of the kingdom. I'm one of the officials of the kingdom. And there's officials like me in every land where he gathers his people and speaks to them and get of his grace. Jesus, the king, cares for the poor. He educates children. He saves people from destructive lifestyles. And currently, he has over 2 billion people who call themselves citizens of his kingdom, and hundreds of millions of people who would be willing to die to show their allegiance to this king. I mean, he is loved by people all over the world, this king. He is the most beloved. And this is not a fantasy. This is not a fairy tale. This is a real thing that is happening on this world in this day, and it's happening right in this room. This is a real thing. And just as Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? He's asking each one of us that same question. Who do you say that I am? Who do we say that Jesus is? Will we give him the allegiance that he demands as the true king of the world? Now, you might be distrustful of someone who claims to be the true king of the world and who demands that all people everywhere will bow their knee to me. And, you know, that sounds like a crazy person. I mean, most people who want to be the king of the world are egomaniacs. Why would you trust Jesus if he wants to be the king of the world and he wants everyone to bow their knee to him? Why should you trust him? Well, I think that leads to the second answer of what is the gospel. So the first answer is that the gospel is that Jesus is the true king of the world. The second answer is that the gospel is that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. And you see immediately after Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the true king of the world, what does Jesus say in verse 31? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And even that title, Son of Man, that's a title that also comes from one of the prophets, Daniel. And you might hear the name Son of Man and think, oh, that sounds like a humble title, like he's just one of us. He's a son of humanity. But if you go back and read Daniel chapter 7, you'll find out it's actually just the opposite. The Son of Man is the title of the king who's going to come and have dominion over all the nations of the world. And you'd say, oh, it's like the highest title that's being given But most of the people who read through these prophets and saw, oh, there's this king who's coming and there's all these qualities about him and he's going to have dominion over all the nations of the world, they conveniently ignored one of Isaiah's prophecies about the Christ in Isaiah 53, that he would be rejected and suffer and die for the sins of his people. And historically, Christians have referred to this as Christ's humiliation. Christ's humiliation. The high king, the son of God, the one who created all things, to whom all glory is due, did not stay in his high position, but he lowered himself to the point of being a servant and even to the point of dying a shameful death on the cross. 
Now, if you feel distrustful of someone who claims to be the true king of the world, I think that's reasonable to be distrustful of anyone who wants everyone's allegiance and obedience. But the reason to trust Jesus is because he didn't become king with a power grab. He humbled himself in love for you and for me. And he not only lowered himself to that low point of death, and not only was humiliated in the sense, you know, Jesus was spit on, he was beaten, he was betrayed by his friends, he was wrongfully accused of blasphemy. But the Bible tells us something even more mysterious about what was happening when the Son of God died on the cross. Jesus became sin. The thing that makes humanity so ugly Betrayal and selfishness and anger and violence, lust, abuse, murder and greed. All that blackness that is so hideous about the human race, he became that. And God's wrath against every evil thing in the world fell not on us, it fell on him. And Martin Luther puts it this way. He says, all the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc. that ever was. For he being made a sacrifice for the sins of the world is not now an innocent person without sins. Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men. It's not that Jesus died as an innocent man, it's that he took the sins and became sin itself so that sin was killed in him. And I think the cross of Christ is the deepest reason why we should trust him. If there's anyone in the world to trust, it is Jesus Christ. But the cross of Christ will never make sense to you unless you see how incredibly ugly your own sin is, how black and hideous it is. And until we see what our hearts are really like, what are our hearts really like? What I care most about are my desires, my comfort, my kingdom, my glory, and getting my way. And when I don't get those things, my heart rages. When God does not give me the dreams that I have for my own life, my heart rages against him. And most people are not honest enough with themselves to understand why they need the gospel. And especially in our culture where we're constantly telling ourselves what good people we are. Don't ever feel shame for anything. How how could we ever understand the cross in a culture like this? There's a great hymn. We'll probably sing it sometime in Lent or during Good Friday. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And it says this. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose its evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly and here its guilt may estimate. Sin is so ugly. And yet the love of the Son of God says to all human beings, if you will humble yourself, I will embrace you. God will welcome you into his kingdom. And the king will be your king. And so what's the gospel? Well, it's an interesting contrast of the first two points. That Jesus, on the one hand, he's the true king of the world. He has the highest title of Lord, the son of man. His dominion over all the nations is so high, and yet the gospel is also that Jesus died to forgive our sins. And not only just to forgive it, he became sin. He became the most ugly and black thing in our place so that we can be washed and forgiven and embraced. 
But there's one more aspect of the gospel I want to point out from this passage. This is the third answer to what is the gospel, is that the gospel is that Jesus is the only one who can offer us eternal life. Jesus is the only one who can offer us eternal life. And you see that um, even though Jesus says he'll suffer and die, he makes this even more amazing statement in the end of verse 31 where he says, and after three days, rise again. Now someone might say, well, what do you think would happen? God sends his beloved son to go care for the weak and the poor and to forgive sins, and we murder him wrongly? Do you think God's just going to leave him dead? He's not going to reverse the wrong verdict that we put on Jesus? Of course he's going to reverse the verdict and raise him from the dead. But Jesus' resurrection turned out not just to be for him, but he has offered eternal life to any who trust in him. And, you know, it's amazing to me that all of us know we are on a clear path towards dying. And we have no certain information about what happens after the grave. I mean, who, have, who has information about what happens after you die? Who can tell you about it? You know, um, many people, you say, well, what do you think happens after you die? Well, I think, I think I'm going to go into a light, and then I'm going to be with people I love, and I'm going to... I'm going to have a happy existence, or maybe I'm going to be a drop in the oneness of being. And you say, well, where did you come up with that? I just made it up. I just made it up. And if you have a spiritual guru who's going to tell you about what's going to happen after you die, where did they get that? They just made it up. How else would they come up with an answer to that? No one has it, except for one person. Only the person who has come back from the grave, who has been to death and returned, is the only authority who can tell us what happens after the grave. Jesus is the only person who has the right to talk about what happens after we die because he's the only one who has come back from death. And that's why he says of himself uh, later in the New Testament, I have the keys of death and Hades. Whether you like it or not, death is one of the biggest problems on the horizon of each of our existence. And the gospel says that Jesus Christ alone can speak with any authority about it. And if you are in Christ, he promises that death has been turned into a doorway into, into life, true life, freed from sin, free from tears, um, communion with God's people, and best of all, you will finally know God the way that he knows you. I mean, it's an incredible promise. And you just think, you know, how good is eternal life with God? Well, just think, look at this world. I mean, it's so intricate and beautiful how he has made everything. God makes beautiful, good places to be in. How much more is any world where we are going to spend with him for eternity? This is what Jesus is offering us. And you can find that eternal life nowhere else except by faith and commitment to Jesus Christ. Who else would have the audacity or any right to offer us eternal life except for the one who has conquered the grave? And so this is incredibly good news and that the true king of the world is not any of politician, anyone who claims leadership, but is Jesus Christ. And he offers us grace to cover our sins and eternal life in the face of death. And it's all a gift. 
It's something you can't earn from God where he will owe you. You just have to trust in him. You have to have the humility to say, Lord, I will receive the gift that you'll give to me. And you might wonder, well, that sounds amazing. Why would anyone reject that gift? Well, shockingly, even here in this passage, Peter does not accept what Jesus is saying. You see there in verse 32, it says, And Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As beautiful and good as the gospel is, there is something in us that deeply resists it. Our pride hates the gospel. Our pride does not want Jesus to be the true king of the world. Our pride does not want to admit that I need my sins to be forgiven and that I can't deal with them myself. Our pride does not want to have to depend on a savior to deal with death. I should be good enough for myself. It's a miracle to have your life changed by the gospel. And so this leads to our second question. We've looked at what, what is the gospel. Jesus is the true king of the world who's died to forgive our sins and offer us eternal life. Now we have to ask, how does it shape how we live? And I'm going to give a short answer to this. We have to go die with Jesus. That's how we have to live. He died on the cross in our place so God's wrath would not fall on us, but that does not mean that we don't have to go to the cross with him and die with him. Jesus was humiliated. If we want to know him, we must be humbled and humiliated with him. And these verses are some of the most important for understanding what it's like to be a Christian. This is just going to describe, if you want to be a Christian, this is a description of what it's like. And I, w I wish I had more time to, to, to go through these verses, but just listen to what Jesus says. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Pretty much the whole Christian life is my pride must die with Jesus so that I can find new life in him. That's, that's what our whole life's going to be. Everyone in this room is going to experience that. That's what God is doing with us, is he's going to crush our pride so that we will be humble enough to receive the grace of Jesus that he has to give. And you're, not, you're never going to grow out of that. And that's why this church, this needs to be a place that is kind and gentle to people because God is bringing people here to crucify them so that they can die with Jesus. This is a place where people come to die so that they can find new life in Christ. And through that death, he makes our hearts tender, he makes our hearts loving, and he makes our hearts solely devoted to him. So the gospel is like nothing else in the world. It is good news beyond what anyone could have invented, and it is true. And if you have not embraced the gospel, 
Today, it has been announced to you. Jesus has made it known to you. And he calls you to repent from a life of sin and to believe and trust in him and offer your allegiance to the true king of the world. And so let us put our trust in Jesus and give him our supreme loyalty now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for these powerful words. No one else in the world will tell us these truths except for the word that you have preserved for us in the Gospels. And Lord, uh, may it be our supreme joy that we have been welcomed into the kingdom of the true king. And Lord, we love Jesus, that he would come down to such a low place that he would become sin itself so that we might have peace with you and the hope of eternal life. I pray for every soul present in this room. May each one of them know this hope and promise. Would you grant to each of us hearts with the humility and the faith to receive it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.